Miles, are you okay? You look harrowed. I think Cable might be my arch nemesis. What gives, man? I thought you liked Cable. I I like him as a character. As a continuity riddle, he is literally why I drink. Jay, I've been doing research for this spotlight all week. I haven't slept in two days because I can't figure out Clan Ascani. Okay, okay, fine. But if you're going to be Cable's arch nemesis, I don't think Strife's going to take that well. I mean, he's pretty territorial. Man, I don't care what Strife thinks. Well, nobody cares what Strife thinks. It's true. Man, now I feel kind of bad for him, though. I mean, living in Cable's shadow, can't get hugs because of all the blades. To be fair, that part is kind of his own fault. Is it, though, Jay? Is it? Yes. Okay, but still, uh, he and Cable never even got to have any wacky twin hijinks. They had clone confusion. Does that count as wacky twin hijinks? No. Okay, look, you know, this really isn't my bailiwick. Um, Dennis, you wrote Cable for a really long time. Have he and Strife ever gotten to, like, bond or do twin stuff? Not really. Aw, man. Unless you count the time they shared a body for a while. Well, that's definitely a situation ripe for wacky hijinks. I mean, it was less sharing and more Strife getting killed, hitchhiking along, and occasionally wrestling control to enact his agenda. Ugh, that sounds... bleak. Where'd he start? He forced Cable to grow a doofy goatee. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 140 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome also, once again, to Dennis Hopeless. Dennis, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, also, I guess, Merry Christmas, since we just realized this episode's going to be airing then. And appropriately enough, today we are taking some time out of the continuity that we're going through at the moment to spotlight the mutant messiah himself. Now, I know a lot of you have been looking forward to us covering Cable's first appearance, and we did the Star Jammers, and now we're doing this. But having read Cable's first appearance, we thought it might be good to talk a bit more about Cable in general and why he's awesome, because in his first appearance, there are uh, there are some problems. There are so many problems. I would say that his first appearance is about 90% problems. <laughs> glorious, glorious problems. But today... Well, I was going to say, that's kind of the beauty of Cable. He is retcons... At their best, he is a perfect example of spinning nonsense into narrative gold. Speaking of that narrative gold, that's why we have Dennis Hopeless here with us today, because he wrote the series Cable and X-Force a while back, which I would say is probably my personal favorite Cable story. Damn right. <laughs> yup. Yeah, I actually, when the series first came out, I was so ready to hate it. I actually didn't read it until it had been out for a while, since I didn't know your name at that time. Because I'm like, okay, it's all 90s, everybody's got giant guns and robot arms, this is everything I hated about the 90s, but it turns out it is everything that I had forgotten that I loved about the 90s, like modernized in a great way. Well, and remarkably self-aware, which I think is true of a lot of the better cable stuff out there. And also, you know, Dr. Nemesis, never get sick of Dr. Nemesis. Yeah. From my perspective, it was really weird because they asked me to pitch something that went against my normal uh, tendencies as a writer, and I felt like I had to lean into it. But when I wrote it, I leaned away from it. So it was kind of like, I don't know, it was like juggling to make that book happen. Well, one of the scenes that I always come back to is actually from the very, very beginning of the series where Cable, who at this point is purged of the techno-organic virus, we'll get to that later, you know, has a tiny shriveled arm because it used to be his robot arm and it's not good at lifting things and stuff. And so he gets like this giant mecha arm from Forge and talks about how, you know, hey, even for me, dude, this is ridiculous. And so, yeah, it's, it's that kind of leaning in and leaning away simultaneously that was uh, a, a ton of fun about the whole series. Well, Dr. Nemesis's outfit, I think, is one of the better examples of that since he doesn't he 
originally pick it basically to fit in with 90s X-Force? Yes. Yeah, well, a lot of that was that Salvador LaRocca would draw these amazing things that made no sense with what I was planning on doing. <laughs> like the, like the, the arm. Like, what? what is that? That is crazy. Like, it's really cool, but I have no idea what you're doing. So I would come up with narrative reasons like or jokes. Oftentimes, I would just make fun of it. Uh, and it ended up being, um, yeah, like some of the charm of the book came from that. Well, that's definitely a thing Nemesis helps with. And it's also, again, kind of goes back to how Cable works best and his strength. It's just, you know, starting with the awesome and adding the coherent later. Kind of. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. So speaking of the order of awesomeness and coherence and the order of things, what I think we're going to do today is start by taking a look at Cable's history and how he fits into continuity at some of the backstory of his creation. And then we're going to have a more in-depth discussion of how he's worked historically as a character, you know, what series and spotlights. We're not going to cover everything in Cable's history. This is basically going to be an overview of maybe the first three quarters. If even that, I would say if we were trying to cover everything in Cable's history, like that would be another podcast. That would be Jay and Miles, Cable Splain Cable. But yeah, I mean, uh, what we want to do here with this episode is essentially get a lot of the context in place, both in terms of Cable's history, you know, all of the retconned history, and in terms of why Cable is actually an awesome character, so that when we do cover him in continuity next episode, everybody kind of has that in mind, things make a little more sense, and we can see the seeds being planted for what's going to turn into a really great character. Oh my god, can we call this episode Unto Us a retcon is given? <laughs> I mean, it would be seasonally appropriate, I It suppose. would be so seasonally appropriate. I was talking to David about the art today, and we were going to do a whole nativity scene thing. And you vetoed it because you're no fun and also had concerns about offense. And we came up with something else. But I'm still really bummed that I couldn't do that because I was I was busy casting it. And like Rachel was going to be the angel. and <laughs> With the phoenix. Yes. Raptor. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. It would have been great. Would have been brilliant. Strife would have been lurking in the background, just brooding. <laughs> I support that 100%. Okay. So Cable made his first appearance as Cable. I mean, technically, he would be retconned to have made his first appearance as you know, baby Nathan Christopher years earlier, but in 1990 in New Mutants. And for a character with a very complicated incontinuity history, he's got as complicated a meta history and a creative history. We found a lot of different accounts of his origin, and none of them quite match up. Now, here's the part that everybody seems to agree on. You know, with the New Mutants kind of on their own, they were no longer with Xavier, they were no longer with Magneto. While they had just gotten to live on ship with X-Factor, they didn't really have a mentor there. Bob Harris, who was editing at the time, thought, okay, we need to fix this. The New Mutants need a third mentor. I think it should be kind of a militaristic, badass character. Louise Simonson, since you're writing The New Mutants, and Rob Liefeld, since you're about to be drawing The New Mutants, let's make this happen. So Liefeld's account of this basically has him as Cable's sole creator. Simonson's is of a more collective process between her, Harris, and Liefeld. We've got sort of extended quotes from them. Simonson from, I believe, an interview. Liefeld from a message board. And then Walter Simonson, Louis Simonson's husband, who was also co-working with her a lot at the time, commenting on it years later on Facebook. From Louis Simonson. I had thought that the New Mutants would be perfectly fine without an adult around, but Bob wanted one. I came up with the character and what his motivation was. Rob came up with the character design. Actually, his original character design was supposed to be for Strife, but Bob and I thought it would be better for Cable. I thought about calling him Commander X at one point, but Rob wanted to call the guy Cable, and I said, you know what? Sure, Cable is a fine name. Anything to get Rob interested in the stories. Rob Liefeld's own account is, That's just plain untrue. God bless her, she's a fantastic talent, but she had nothing to do with Cable's creation or conception. Were it not for Marvel's peculiar business practice of crediting the writer or scripter of the issue where the character first appears as the co-creator, this wouldn't be an issue. Had Bill Matlow scripted Cable's first appearance, they would be credited with his co-creation. 
I'm happy she's benefited financially as she's a talented and lovely lady. He was born on my sketchpad in response to a request from my editor to create a new tough leader for the new mutants. After I submitted him with copious notes and named Kim Cable, he was integrated into the story immediately beginning with issue number 87. There was no script or plot that preceded the creation and design of Cable. And finally, from Walter Simonson, commenting on both years later, Wheezy decided that Cable should be a time traveler from the future, a tough, no-nonsense-take-charge kind of leader. He would be mysterious, a character with many questions but few answers. He was not initially conceived as Scott Summer's son from the future, although the decision to send Scott's baby into the future had already been made by Wheezy in her storylines. It was left to someone else, probably Fabian Nesaza, to draw those two stories' threads together and make Cable Scott's son or whatever has happened to him. But given the state the storylines were in when Weezy left the book, that was certainly a logical storyline development. So as for what actually happened, I mean, it's really hard to say. Well, I will say the who created the character and was it solo or co-created is an argument that Liefeld specifically has gotten into a lot around a lot of characters that he drew for Marvel. Yeah. So I suspect just based on that history that some of that involves folks coming at it from very different and very set perspectives. And Dennis, in your experience, like as far as the characters that you've worked on, how's that worked with you working with artists to create new characters? Yeah, well, I always credit the artists as much as possible because a lot of times I'll describe a new character and see something in my head and then the art comes back and wildly changes what I was planning. That happened a lot in Avengers Arena. Uh, The original character sketches, like written character sketches that I gave to Kev Walker he came back with something wildly different and that's what the character became. So I always lean into like, eh, it's mostly the artist and, and what their stuff sparks in my head. Uh, it is also the case that when you're conceiving something, you don't know how big a deal it's going to be. So your memory of the thing is, is colored by what happened later. So it's not, it doesn't surprise me that there are multiple people with different versions of that. Cause at the time it doesn't matter, right? You're, the editor asks you to draw something. The editor asks you to come up with something. You come up with it. The timeline gets screwy. Like our memories are not as clear as we think they are. So it doesn't surprise me at all that I, I've had instances, incidents like that where there are multiple stories of the conception of the thing based on who's being asked. And I don't know which one of them is true. Even if I have my own version, because you know, at the time it wasn't profound. It was just something you were doing on a Tuesday. And that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, I've said this before already this episode and I'll say it again, but one of the most pervasive aspects of Cable is that a lot of his significance gets added retroactively and retrospectively. And that happens. That's going to keep happening throughout his life as a character. Yeah. I mean, God, talk about complication. So he shows up in New Mutants 87. I mean, technically at the end of 86, I think. It's just a next time on panel. Yeah. Yeah. And... For a long time, his purpose is going to be nebulous. He's got some kind of connection to the New Mutants. He mentions having seen them before on TV. He mentions having known a lot of X-Men characters, but it's not going to be for a while until we find out sort of the critical details. A, he's a time traveler, and B, he has come back on a mission. Or on one of many missions, because I was looking into, you know, some of the initial ideas for Cable, because remember from those quotes, it wasn't originally conceived that he was Cyclops' son. He was just a time traveler from the future. One possibility that got floated really early was that he was actually Cannonball from the future, come back to mentor his teenage self. I actually kind of like that one. I believe that was Liefeld's idea. Discworld definitely did that pretty much exactly once. (laughs) Well, there you go. It's a good book. An early justification for him being back in the present was also related to Cannonball, and that was that he was here to follow and mentor Cannonball, since Cannonball was really secretly one of the immortal externals. That was a really big plotline for a while, Cannonball died and came back to life, and then it just sort of was never mentioned again. Yeah, by kind of unspoken consensus, we just sort of let that one slide. Finally, there was the, you know, that he chased Strife back. 
Yeah, and that's what we went with for a while before Apocalypse being Cable's main quarry became the focus of his character for many, many years. In terms of his actual history, he was in the future, but we know now that he's born in the present. He's little baby Nathan Christopher who's riding around with X-Factor and a force bubble. He ends up in the future and very shortly after in his timeline. But many years later in theirs, Scott and Jean on their honeymoon are going to be pulled up into the future to raise him. And this is where that big, complicated, sprawling, multiversal Summers family tree comes into play. I mean, it already has in that, you know, technically Cable's mother is Madeline Pryor. But they're pulled into the future by Mother Ascani, who is a very aged, somewhat alternate timeline version of Rachel Summers, who's their daughter from the Earth at 11 timeline. And this is, of course, in Earth 4935, the future that Cable is sent to. Now, you mentioned the Ascani, you mentioned Mother Ascani and the Ascani group, and that's sort of a religion slash cult that kind of deifies the X-Men and is waiting for their messianic figure to save the world from Apocalypse. It turns out that messianic figure is, in fact, Nathan Christopher Charles Summers. That's something that gets played up a lot along Cable's life, most explicitly, I think, at least initially, in the Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix miniseries, where there's just a lot of Holy Family imagery. Now, another thing that goes with Cable into this dark future is, in fact, and we'll get to this also in greater detail soon, ship. You know, X-Factor ship. It sort of turns itself into a little bit of technology inside Nathan Christopher Charles Summers to keep at bay the techno-organic virus apocalypse has given him and becomes the being known as Professor. Confused yet? Good. All right, so Baby Summers, who they've been calling Chris and then start calling Nathan once he's in the future, gets pulled into the future by his alternate universe sister. I love that sentence. His dad and the woman from whom his mother was cloned get pulled into the future later, consciousness only, and into cloned bodies to raise him. They raise him till he's about 12, and then Rachel dies and she can't hold their consciousnesses there anymore, and they sort of dissipate back to the past. What happens to Cable? Because this is the big gap for me. This is the stuff that I really just don't know. So here's the thing. A lot of stuff does happen. There's this war between a group called the New Canaanites, who are sort of followers of Apocalypse, and the clan Chosen, who are kind of descendants of the Ascani, and Cable teams up with a dude named Tetherblood and marries an Ascani warrior named Alia Jenscott and has a son named Tyler. Wait, wait, he married someone whose last name was literally a combination of, like, his parents' names? Oh, yeah, she did it as an homage. It was deliberate. It was self-conscious. Huh. But That's really uncomfortable. But this period of time, you know, I, I kind of don't think it matters too much. I mean, obviously, it's a big part of Cable's life, but as far as understanding who Cable is... If you're interested in this, if you're interested in Earth 4935, by all means, check it out. Read a lot of the first Cable series with all the flash forward slash flashbacks. But really, you can kind of skip it until he gets to the present from this point. I kind of feel like between the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix and when he shows up in the mainstream timeline of Earth 616, eh, you don't really need to know that stuff. That's something I think Cable has in common with Wolverine, which is that his past is much more interesting when it's hinted at than it is when it's spelled out. I think I would agree, although in this case, past is future, because, you know, Cable. It's Cable's past, the universe's future. I'm talking about his personal relative timeline right now. So, like, Cable age 12, Cable age 30, Cable age 50, rather than, like, the year 2000, the year 4200, etc. Well, regardless, Cable, once he's a gray-haired, grizzled badass, does in fact come back to our present. Our present, of course, being 1990. Maybe to mentor Cannonball, maybe to fight Strife, maybe to look for Apocalypse. It's kind of ambiguous. Maybe just to yell a lot. Maybe just to yell a lot and fire guns. And there's other stuff involving him working with a mercenary group, him finding a time-traveled version of his son who's trying to get revenge on him by disguising himself as an arms dealer. Oh yeah, he's got a son named Tyler who Strife kidnaps and raises, doesn't he? 
it's complicated. There's some brainwashing involved. There may be some rape involved in his conception because it may be actually Strife's kid. It's ambiguous. The only thing you really need to know about Tyler is that Strife kidnapped him and brainwashed him. Wolverine killed him. And it's still kind of a sore spot for everyone involved. But yeah, so here we have Cable. We have this badass time-traveling mercenary who will do anything he needs to get the job done. He has a bunch of other adventures in the future, and we'll of course be covering them over the course of the podcast, but very, very briefly. Later, he will almost die fighting Strife, with whom he then merged. We covered that in the cold open. That was the goatee. There's a great panel about that of Strife being really pissed off that Cable shaved off his beard. He joined the X-Men. I think he only joined the X-Men officially after Cyclops died during the 12, which is a whole other mess. Speaking of messy Summers family continuity and multiple Nathan Summers's grays, whatever, running around, um, he teamed up with Gene to kill Apocalypse and free Cyclops. He was a mutant messiah in the present as well as the future on the island of Providence, like Rhode Island. Providence was an artificial floating city, which was uh, built from the material of Grey Malkin, his space station. But in Rhode Island? I don't think so. I think it was the South Pacific. No, that's not nearly as funny. <laughs> well, then Rhode Island it is. I, I, I reject this continuity and substitute my own stupid alternative. <laughs> I just I just I want cable like in Rhode Island and Vermont. I sort of agree. like <laughs> sort of like how Asgard was in Oklahoma. Yeah, but like Cable growing a beard and getting really into Ralph Nader, totally believable. I can handle that. Right. So let's see, what else is he going to do? So he is then going to jump back into the time stream after the birth of Hope Summers, who is, I guess, the second generation mutant messiah, his adopted kid, originally Hope Spaulding. She was the first mutant birth after M-Day. And Cable spent decades or a decade and a half about running through the time stream, only able to move forward in it, protecting her from Bishop, who was chasing after them in hopes of killing Hope to prevent his own dark future. And for me, this is where I start to very much like Cable. I was never a huge fan of Cable, I think mainly because his appearance changed the tone of New Mutants, my favorite book, so much. But once Hope Summers shows up, once Cable becomes a father figure not to a character named Tyler— I think it becomes much more interesting, and that's a little bit before uh, your run picks up, Dennis. Cable fascinates me so much more as an ex-messiah than as a messiah. You know, what do you do after you've saved the world? What do you do after you've fulfilled your destiny? How do you keep doing things that matter? Are kind of the driving questions and the way he throws himself back into things or doesn't or removes himself from or engages with the rest of the mutant community, with the rest of the world and with his family is I think the point where we actually start to get to see him as a character rather than just sort of a plot force. I agree with both of those things so much that it's bizarre um, <laughs> that someone else said them. I love the series, the like Lone Wolf and Cub, Cable and Hope bouncing around the future being chased by Bishop. I think that series makes both of those characters wildly more interesting than they were before. Yeah. Um, I think the family dynamic of that is more interesting than anything that came before. Um, and I loved it and I was super stoked when I read it cause I didn't read it when it was first coming out. I read it after they told me to pitch cable and I'm like, ah, cable was an action figure. I played with when I was 12 that I don't <laughs> understand at all. And then you go to Wikipedia and you're you know, your ears start to bleed trying to put it all together. Oh man. Researching um, this in the next episode. Yeah. It was rough. <laughs> yeah. It's really fun listening to you guys try to explain it. Cause I remember like just trying to wrap my mind around any of it and looking at like the stacks of stuff I could read. And then, like, people would tell me their favorite cable stories, and I'd go read that bit by itself, and it was nonsense. Like, I have no idea how this fits in with this thing that I'm supposed to understand, and how is, yeah. So, it's, yeah, it's fun to listen to someone else have to figure it out. But, yeah, <laughs> once we got to uh, Cable and Hope in the future, running from Bishop, I love that. I think that, that, that 
relationship is really interesting. That dynamic is interesting. And um, one of the big things I wanted to do is that, like, he saved her. He saved his daughter. They saved the world. Like, now he's this guy that's really great at war who just wants his daughter to have a normal life. And so, therefore, he's got to try to figure out how to retire. Like, that was my original pitch is, like, what does Cable do if he needs to retire? And what happens if, it, if, if, if the war universe won't let him? Which is sort of what I pitched. Right. And that I mean, runs in the family pretty hard. Oh, it does. Yeah. I mean, as many times as Cyclops or Havoc have attempted to just be normal people, Havoc especially. Well, one of the things I like most about the Cable and Hope era, which I first read all of the X-Books on the other side of that before going and reading the Cable and Hope series, I read that relatively recently, was the very self-conscious parallel between Cable and Hope and Scott and Cable. Um, yeah. The way that's played and the way that's played for sympathy and as a point of connection for both of those characters, like the things that you see, because they've effectively reconciled long, long, long before that. But there's sort of a sense of, well, you know, we're family that supersedes things. And then with both of them coming out of this, there is a sense of mutual understanding that just hadn't existed before. And to clarify, Dennis wrote Cable and X-Force, which comes after the Cable and Hope stories that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, Cable as the elderly, well, I don't want to say elderly, but as the older son of a younger father, that dynamic between Cable and Cyclops has always fascinated me. I mean, seeing them in Cable and X-Force, seeing them in that one, I think it was the Scott Lobdell issue of Uncanny X-Men, catching up. Uh, Is he actually older in experienced time? I mean, I know he's younger physically, but if the age difference physically is less than 12 years, then Scott's still technically older because of the time jump in the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. Oh, right. You know, I always forget that, that adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix takes place over 12 years, even though it takes zero amount of time in Scott and Jean's like biological chronology. Well, and then you have to take into account relative Marvel time oh, where geez. people age at vastly different ages and, or get stuck and go back. Cable also is on a sliding scale of what age his body appears to be, right? Cause he started out super old and now he kind of slides back and forth based on what we want him to do. Mm -hmm. And that usually gets explained away with the techno-organic virus, but that could just as easily explain why he looks as old as he is and, you know, where that may or may not be relative to his body's chronological age. Right. Yeah. So, Dennis, what would be your take? Like, how old do you think Cable would roughly be chronologically? Like, he, he represents this, like, the fascination <laughs> that uh, I think dudes have with old man strength. <laughs> like this idea that we're going to be like hyper masculine at some point and that like age is not coming to make us weaker. It's coming to make us stronger. Like Frank Castle sort of like that too, right? Like this, this ultra man that gets these 65 is stronger than everyone else and you can't kill him with bullets. And so I think it depends on like how intense that, uh, that notion is in the current series. Um, so yeah, in my mind, he's like 59 to 65, but just because of that trope, like that's, that's where I see that trope. But he and can maybe, still like lift a car. Right, lift a car and you can't kill him with an axe. Like, you know, he's basically invincible because he's old. <laughs> Does that make any sense? That makes perfect sense. You know, it does if you've got enough techno-organic technology. He's also a character whose development as a hero is somewhat stunted, at least early on, because his powers and a lot of his life are kept in check first by keeping the techno-organic virus at bay. I mean, literally, he's a very, very powerful telepath and telekinetic who just has no access to those powers for a long time. And then because he's got, you know, this big future destiny to play out and then this big present destiny to play out. And so I feel like, you know, a lot of the good later cable stuff is him kind of still figuring out a lot of teenager stuff and how to be a person when he doesn't have to be fighting desperately. Yeah, Which I completely is agree. fascinating, right? Like a, someone who grew up without a childhood because of, for all these ridiculous reasons would not be a very good adult, like not a very well-rounded uh, human. 
and yeah, I mean, that's, we, we play with that a lot in, in the book because he doesn't understand what a normal childhood is, but he wants hope to have one. Mm-hmm. And she's yeah. like, I, what are you talking about? I was raised in a post-apocalyptic future with your crazy ass. Like, I don't want that. That's not the life that I was trained for. So I, I think that's a fun family dynamic. And it, yeah, he's a very broken, interesting fellow. And we see a little more of that, actually, in the run that comes after your run, in Cy Spurrier's run of X-Force, where at the end of it, Hope basically takes over X-Force from him because she thinks he's kind of too messed up, too broken to do it himself. And I like that, you know, the whole, that's how you know you've raised your kid right, when your kid can do your job When your kid you supersedes you on a murder team? I mean, you know, it's all relative. I mean, Dennis, you're a parent. Is this what you're working towards? <laughs> oh, God, no, absolutely. Yeah, honestly, the... Everything about the character, and I don't, I didn't have kids yet whenever I wrote it, but um, everything about his relationship with Hope, his relationship with Scott, and everything like that is very different in my mind now that I have children. Like, I want none of that, none of the strife. That's a funny way to put it. Oh, uh, speaking of strife, you've actually got twins. Have you assigned them cable and strife roles? They assign themselves cable and strife roles all the time, yes. One <laughs> of them is like silently vindictive and the other one just likes to pick things up and throw them, but is a sweetheart. So I feel like, uh, yeah, that's just happening on its own. I have no control over it. I look forward to the inevitable holiday photos where one of them has a, a, an unrealistically giant gun and one has a ridiculous helmet. Covered in knives, yeah. <laughs> Talking again about just kind of who Cable is as a character... I guess I want to talk a little bit about the archetypes that he's had, because we've seen him as this sort of badass mercenary when he first comes back from the future. And in fact, for much of the first many years when he was written, we've seen him as this sort of messianic figure when he's running Providence or, you know, in another form, the Nate Gray character from Age of Apocalypse. We've seen him as a dad. Like, that's one of the things I enjoy about Cable is that he's not a static character. I think that's why the character's got legs, why the character, you know, is still interesting so many years after being created as kind of a one-dimensional archetype, because he can change. And so I guess I'm curious as to what everybody's kind of definitive cable is, if either of you have one. Oh, yeah, mine's definitely dad cable. Like, I I relate to that. And and maybe it's because my dad was sort of that kind of guy, like gruff and uh, yelly, if that makes (laughs) sense. Uh, So, yeah, I I can appreciate the, uh, yeah, the sort of the road lone wolf and cub and everything wrapped around that cable. Mine is family cable in general. It's the cable who has a very fractured sense of family, but also prioritizes it above everything and is really, really hungry to find and preserve it. And I think if I had to pick, I'm kind of going to be on the same page. Like there's something about cable as a father to hope and cable as a son to Cyclops, maybe not cable as a son to Madeline Pryor, because that just gets really weird. But there's something about that that works for me, that sense of continuity, that sense of duty related to the people that you come from and the people that come from you. I'm sorry, early in there, you just said there's something about Cable, and I kind of shorted out at that point. (laughs) Now, there's a crossover that needs to happen. That's also taking me back to, so there's the Uncanny X-Bot on Twitter that mines uncannyxmen.net summaries to just put together new X-Men issues uh-huh. and solicitation. And recently it invented a series called Cable, 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 <laughs> which is, is sort of easy to imagine Brady Bunch style with, I guess, Cable as the Marsha to Strife's Jan. Well, and we've also established the Reavers as the Brady Bunch. So how does this all interact? This is complex. I mean, you know, you said it yourself. Cable works in a lot of different archetypes. I think that there are a large number of sitcoms you could drop him into, which is kind of the beauty of Cable and Cable and Strife in general. They're so exaggerated. They're so absurd in their original and sort of purest forms that they're just fundamentally hilarious in ways that only characters designed to be incredibly serious can be. 
Well, let's actually talk a little bit about Strife, because Strife is a critical character to Cable's history, and we haven't really touched on him yet in this episode. Okay, um, so first of all, Strife is, I think, the funniest character in the Marvel Universe. Okay. I mean, he's very serious and he's very sad and tragic. So do you know David Willis's theory of Batman humor? Explain that, if you will. Okay, so this, I think, first came up in Short Pact. And the idea is that Batman is ultra-competent and he's ultra-serious which makes him the perfect butt of any joke. But it also means that all you have to do is put him in an unlikely setting to make him funny. So take Batman and imagine him doing any normal thing, but as Batman. Okay, so like washing dishes with the rubber gloves and the apron. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, see where you're going. So you're saying Playing Dance Dance Revolution. He would be amazing at Dance Dance Revolution. Well, he's the best at everything. So the same thing works with Strife, only it's funnier because he's got a costume that'll catch on door frames. <laughs> Do you think he has to turn his head sideways to get through doors, except he can't because his shoulder spikes in the way, so he just has to walk through doors entirely sideways? I think he refuses to. He just busts through them all, and it's like Muscle March. <laughs> There's a deep cut. Muscle March was this old Nintendo Wii game. where you- It was so great. You played bodybuilders or possibly a polar bear. There was One of the characters was a polar bear. And um, a bandit had stolen your protein shakes and you had to chase him. But you were a whole line of bodybuilders chasing him and you had to get in the same pose as the first one who went through any given wall to bust through it. I once spent seven hours at a Christmas party figuring out the formula for how you beat the hardest level of that. Because it gets so fast, you can't just use reflexes. You have to, like, count. And I figured out the exact formula for uh, how to do it. I've beaten that game. You are my hero. (laughs) I've never met anyone who's beaten that game. All right, yeah, so nobody else was impressed. Everybody else was drinking and partying, and I was trying to crack Muscle Mark. Just you and Batman, and maybe Strife. Actually, Strife would probably rage quit. <laughs> probably. He also couldn't, you know, move his arms around nearly enough. Oh, man. I bet Strife just hated the Wii as a system. Well, anyway, maybe we should talk about Strife in terms of, you know, continuity. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> so, Strife was originally shown to be Cable himself in disguise, then shown to be the original Nathan Christopher Charles Summers, from whom Cable was cloned. Strife also was introduced at the same time as Cable. He is the antagonist that Cable's going to be facing in his first arc. He, at that point, is leading the Mutant Liberation Front, or MLF, which always makes me think of Tom Lair. And the idea that they were some version of the same dude comes up fairly early and then got played around a lot. So for a while, Strife was supposed to be the original and Cable was supposed to be the clone. Um, Then that ultimately got switched up. Strife is, in fact, the clone, and he's the clone with one of the more hilarious origin stories, which is that Rachel Summers, Mother Ascani, literally just made him as an emergency backup, just in case something happened to Cable. Is there an emergency backup me somewhere in case I get hit by a bus and you want to keep doing the podcast? I can't see your eyes through your ubiquitous sunglasses, but I suspect they're very shifty right now. I'm not telling. Oh, man, stupid ubiquitous sunglasses. But yeah, so Strife was kind of the equal opposite to Cable for a long time. You know, Strife had the Mutant Liberation Front, Cable had the New Mutants, and later X-Force. For a while, like we were talking about in the cold open, they were actually sharing a body. And I don't know, for me, like, Cable's a character that stays interesting, that does grow and change and evolve. And I don't know, Strife has just never really been that for me. It almost seems like Cable at a certain point outgrew Strife. Yeah, the main difference between Cable and Strife is that Strife has always been defined by Cable and Cable has never been defined by Strife. That's actually a really good way of putting it. Even when Cable thought he was a clone of Strife, he still kind of did his own thing and had his own mission. Yeah, he had his own stuff to do. Strife, on the other hand, was raised by Apocalypse. Basically, he was raised... 
to be the enemy of Cable and he was raised to resent Scott and Jean and he just he never stops pushing back against that. He never stops being the angry competitive kid and that's the only thing he's really still got. Like Cable has other motivations and Strife's just really got the one thing he keeps coming back to. What's your take on that, Dennis? Because I know you wrote Strife in the last arc of Cable and X-Force when it crossed over with Uncanny X-Force. Yeah, Strife is a problematic character for exactly that reason for me because he's hard to he's hard to relate to. I mean, you've seen what I did with Apocalypse and all the Men. Like, I try to make these, these larger-than-life, old-school villains relatable. And yeah, Strife is very one-note relative to Cable. So, uh, <clears throat> when, honestly, the real Strife, my Strife was was... 45 year old hope from the future that's the strife that i understood writing the other part was a crossover that um i got let sam humphreys do most of the heavy lifting on strife because i kind of don't understand the character honestly Mm -hmm. that actually comes back to you know strife's creative origins wasn't he originally supposed to be a woman under the costume uh, well, that was one of Rob Liefeld's ideas, and his basic take was that, you know, Strife could be a character like Wolverine, as could Cable, with a bunch of different contradictory origins where you never know what's what. But yeah, I mean, there were a lot of ideas for Strife, and and that was one of them. And, you know, I kind of like that. I mean, I think in a way, it could almost sound like we're making fun of some of the the creators of uh, Cable and Strife and the Mutant Liberation Front and all of this, Liefeld and everybody else. But that's actually a cool way to do it, is to just have a bunch of different possibilities, a bunch of different potential continuities that you can come back to later, maybe even throw some of them out as red herrings, like in the Days of Future Present storyline, when it seems like Cable might really grow up to be Ahab, and then that never goes anywhere. Also, I feel like there is a long tradition of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks in comics, in really, I think, any serialized, deadline-driven creative industry. Mm -hmm. And as with Cable, that produces some of the most unexpected awesomeness ever, but it also produces you know, strife. And remember, these are people building on the legacy of a universe occupied, among other things, by a character who got super speed from being injected with mongoose blood. Was that the wizard? (laughs) That is, I was going to say, and is named the wizard. So, (laughs) you know, sometimes it works better than others. (laughs) But that's, I think, what I love about Cable is he's a character that should not work. When he shows up, in my opinion, he's not interesting, and he becomes fascinating. He gets tied in to the very core of X-Men continuity in, like, six different directions, and even if you don't necessarily have to pay attention to every aspect of that, even if you don't necessarily need to know who, like, GW Bridge is, there's still so much to sink your teeth into depending on what parts of the Marvel Universe you like. So I want to go back a little bit, actually, Dennis, and talk about your run on Cable and X-Force again. And, you know, we talked about how variable Cable can be, and I'm wondering if there are any dimensions to Cable or any Cable stories that you wish he'd gotten the chance to tell. Honestly, both of those books sort of ended because our schedules got so messed up that Marvel wanted to uh, not kill us. So (laughs) Sam and I, like, merged them together and ended. So I had a bunch of different things I wanted to do with Cable and Hope together moving forward. But I have written a lot of comics since then, and I I don't know that I had them written down. So, um I definitely wanted to expand on their relationship. I had more stuff that I wanted to do with the future where hope was strife. And uh, I very much wanted to purge Cable of his weird powers. Um, I think we did some of that. So, yeah, I don't. (laughs) My my head is mush. I've had children since then. so (laughs) I don't have specific ones, but definitely. Yeah, I had I had plans for like two more years on that book and different stuff I wanted to do with Cable and with the other characters, and I, it is lost to the ether. It is gone. Well, talking about the other characters, one of the things I liked most about the run was the ensemble. Like, you know, you had, like, Domino and Colossus and Forge and Nemesis and Boom Boom, 
And that was such a good group for Cable to bounce off of. And that's actually another thing I wanted to bring up is the idea of Cable as a member of a team versus a solo character. Has he ever been a member of a team he didn't lead? There was a Mike Carey run of X-Men where he was technically under Rogue. And actually, these days on Kenny Avengers, I believe he is also. So apparently, you know, Anna Marie Raven is the one person Cable will obey orders from. He's fun to write as the leader of a team because he doesn't like to explain himself. That was my thing. It's like he's the perfect soldier who knows exactly what to do in every situation, but he hates explaining himself. Like he just wants to do it and you to follow him and do exactly what he's what he wants you to do. And then I surrounded him with idiots that won't stop talking, like people <laughs> that have the exact opposite personality. So yeah, he had to interact with all of these chatterboxes while just trying to keep his eyes on the prize and focused. And then we sort of paired those different characters up and let them uh, interact with one another. And yeah, it was really fun. But it ends up being a cable book where cable barely speaks. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that was me, <laughs> me dodging, not knowing what else to do with the character. But yeah, I think that he's a great leader and he's a great leader for weirdos because everybody follows him. Everybody believes that he knows what the best thing to do. But maybe he's always a little bit irritated by everyone. I feel like he totally is. I feel like there's just always this slight scowl no matter what's going on when it's not, you know, a giant scowl. You think he and Quicksilver ever get together and just like sit and glare in companionable silence? They might. They can just sort of, uh, you know, commiserate in being annoyed with the entire world. Yeah. And they're, you know, mutual hair. And maybe they, they trade hair care tips. But yeah, when Cable's on a team, I kind of like him that way. I kind of like him as, you know, even if he's the leader, as not necessarily the focal character. And I think for me, the eras of the New Mutants and X-Force that Cable's present in, those are the ones I like best. When, you know, still Cannonball and Boom Boom and whoever else happened to be on the team... They have all the drama and the plot lines and the character growth and Cable's there to, you know, guide them along and have good intentions, but not necessarily hog the spotlight all the time. Well, and when he is the focal character in those times, he bores the hell out of me because he's too competent and he's too on the ball and he knows what's going to happen and he knows what to do. And it's just basically explosion porn at that point. <laughs> there was and a yelling. Lot and I mean, that's not a bad thing briefly and it's a cool thing as an aside but i don't think you can really carry a book on it because it's everything is certain and there's no conflict and there's no uncertainty and it just gets irritating fast that's also why writers always mess with his powers and make him dying because he's (laughs) superman like he's he's too powerful he's too perfect and so it's very difficult to create believable stakes with a character like that so that's why we gave him like a brain bleed that makes him see the future whether he wants to or not because we needed to weaken the character on some level some fundamental level so that the stakes felt real and so that it made sense for him to have a ragtag group around him that did anything. Because, yeah, like at the end of the day, you take the original version of the character. He's he's like a Mary Sue badass. Like he's invincible and has every power that was cool in 1990. And uh, yeah, except for having four arms. (laughs) Oh, forearm. Oh, we'll talk about forearm next episode. No, but so I, I actually have a question spinning off of that. There's a fantastic essay by Glenn Weldon where he actually talks about that with Superman, with the power creep. And he postulates at that point that the problem with this and the reason most writers see it as a narrative issue is that they're looking at Superman from the wrong angle. That challenging Superman doesn't mean giving him something too big to punch. It means giving him a situation where he can't save everyone. What's Cable's equivalent to that? Well, I mean, it's the future, right? You can't actually save the future. You can't act, you can't stop bad things from happening. And no matter how many times you try, there's like, especially in the Marvel universe, every version of the future is crap. I mean, part of it is that it's a, you know, it's a fictional universe where people create drama, but you can't save the future. So he has a task that is impossible. It's like doctors, like doctors are all going to fail in the long run. We're all going to die no matter what the doctor does. 
so Cable's sort of stuck there, where he's the perfect soldier for every war, but there's always going to be another war coming. And that's one of the things I like about just the very concept of him as the perfect soldier, but also a time traveler, is he knows what that futility is, and he fights anyway. He does his best to yeah. you know ensure the least bad outcome, even if he knows all the outcomes are bad. I mean, we see that at the beginning of your run, when, you know, the whole mission goes to hell with that fast food company, and a lot of people die, but fewer right. people die than might have. Like, everything's a Pyrrhic victory. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, everything's a Pyrrhic victory is, I think, a good summation of both why Cable works and a lot of why I like him. There's something really, really fundamentally existentialist about him, especially about him keeping going after he's done his Messiah stuff. That's a good point, yeah. Like, I always come back to, you know, loving the theme of the show Angel so much, the whole, we know we can't win, but fighting anyway is what defines us, and, like, Cable just fits right into that whole thing. So from there, I think it's probably time to jump to listener questions. We put out a call. You responded. The cat who walks through walls asks on Tumblr, I recently realized that a solid percentage of Cable's rogues gallery are either related to him, like Strife or Genesis, or have been written as maybe related to him, such as Finality or Apocalypse. Do you think there's a reason for this, or is it simply an amusing statistical anomaly? Actually, I'll, I'll jump into that one. I have some thoughts there. So I feel like when you have a character whose central kind of retcon plot point is family-related, you know, him being the secret future son of the most central X-Men character, it kind of follows to keep that going. And also Cable being a character based heavily around both duty and sacrifice, when you have him fight family members and maybe even have to kill them, that checks both of those boxes very, very neatly. I was just going to say, the cat who walks through walls, I assume that your family gets along better than mine does. <laughs> you should see Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> We're delightful. Thoughts on that one, Dennis? Or Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's in the DNA of the character, right? Like the everything about him is family related so it makes sense to to elevate uh the villains to that level any interpersonal relationships are what make drama interesting more than explosions so i suspect that's why so how does tyler fit into all this i feel like we've been dancing around tyler this entire episode tyler's the son of cable and alia jen scott from the future and like the, the one wolverine killed the one wolverine killed and I feel like that character should have been a big deal. He should keep coming back in the way that, you know, characters like Strife do. And yet he just doesn't. And I'm wondering what does work about Hope, what does work to a degree about Strife that just doesn't about Tyler. And I, I don't know. I'm, anybody have any thoughts on that? Because I just have a big question mark. I have a thought on that. And my thought is that characters who originate in that future almost never stick. You know, that's true. Very the difference few of them between have. the main difference for Hope and with the qualifier that I haven't read a lot of the material around Tyler. The main difference I see with Hope just immediately is that Hope originated in the main X line. Hope originated as a major plot point in the central X title that was coming out at the time. In Earth 616. And was central to multiple events in that. And Tyler was not. And he was he was in a splinter timeline. And the characters who survive Splinter Timelines are generally the best or most compelling characters of those timelines, and he just never seems to have been. Yeah, I mean, Rachel Summers, he's not. Well, she, again, got introduced in Uncanny X-Men. She didn't get introduced in a side series. You know, Days of Future Past was a storyline. It wasn't a miniseries, and it wasn't a separate ongoing. So, I mean, I think that's the biggest difference in staying power. I think also the fact that Hope has a more coherent arc helps a lot. I mean, she basically goes from MacGuffin to person, and Tyler seems to go in the opposite direction, which I could see making him a lot less appealing to pick back up. Yeah, that's true. I mean, one of the first big things that happens with him is he gets captured and brainwashed and ends up, you know, just sort of being resentfully responding to that for basically the rest of his life. Which basically makes him baby Strife. And if Strife himself already isn't that compelling, having a lesser version running around is just sort of, I mean, it's like having 
really high platform shoes man. No one's really clamoring for a downgraded replacement for stilt man. Although now I'm thinking of Baby Strife like in the Muppet Baby style, and now I want to see a whole X-Force Muppet Baby style series, and then that makes me think of Dennis's kids dressed as Cable and well, Strife. Well, no, and that's the X. Has there been an X-Baby Strife? I don't know. I mean, I thought I've read everything X-Babies that there's been, but I don't remember an X-Baby Strife. Although I'm pretty sure that uh, Scotty Young has drawn Baby Strife on at least one cover. Yeah, definitely. I think so, yeah. <laughs> We seem to have tangented into Muppet Baby's x Well, again, it goes back to the strife is funny and everything. So maybe we should come back to listener questions. Douglas Wolk asks on Tumblr, According to X-Force number 40, Cable graduated from Harvard, undergrad or law school, it's not clear, and then passed the New York State Bar exam a year later. Have we ever found out what area of law is his specialty or why he would have studied it in the first place? Well... I don't think we've actually ever found out. And that was always such a strange thing, because when would he have had time? He's, He's a time traveler. Well, yes, but even so, like the lifeline of an individual person is generally finite. And I feel like he didn't have enough time, you know, not firing guns to study for the bar. He's cable, bro. He also seems less concerned about the law than any other character. <laughs> Keep your friends close and your enemies closer, I guess. He's going to know this thing that he ignores completely. Is he? Well, yeah, I always come back to what uh, Mrs. Janoff, my, my English teacher in high school, said. When we were talking about how, like, but we just want to write like Jack Kerouac, she said that you have to know the rules before you break them. So maybe Cable's using that theory. I don't think that's true. I think Cable just sort of broke rules to begin with. But my theory here is that it was on a dare at some point, that it was on a dare probably specifically from Domino, because I can't imagine anyone else he'd actually follow through on that for. You know, I kind of buy that. I love Cable and Domino's dynamic, I'll just say. So what's his specialty going to be? I bet it's something really unexpected, and I bet it's something really specific. And I feel like as someone who's had to deal with clones and a lot of bullshit around that, a lot of retcons, died a lot of times, I could see him getting really into intellectual property law. Ah, <laughs> Copyright, okay. and that stuff. And you know, in the era where he first shows up, Genosha's starting to be a big deal, and they refer to the mutates as intellectual property. So maybe there's like a director's cut of Extinction Agenda where he has a big uh, a big debate with the gene engineer about this whole thing. I, I think he would just shoot people. That's the thing. I don't think it's anything related to the real world issues he engages with because I don't think he'd be able to sit through those classes. I think he would just be like, fuck this. This is broken. I'm going to go shoot it. I is think it it's, it's got to be is something it possible. He was disparaging attorneys and Domino told him that he can't do that. Like you can't. You have to respect what they know and what they can do that you can't do. So he went to go be able to do it himself so he'd be able to talk shit on lawyers. <laughs> no, because, I, again, I don't think that that would have prevented him from talking shit about them anyway. He just doesn't care. <laughs> That's a good point. Well, OK, so let's say I'm trying to think of a case that he and Wolverine could team up on. Like we know well, Wolverine. We know Wolverine's specialty is maritime law. Exactly. And we know that Wolverine and Cable have a, a mysterious past together. By, by no, by the way, I should say we have decided that Wolverine's specialty is maritime law. Hey, we're experts. We can do that. OK. So, okay, if Cable is an intellectual property lawyer and Wolverine is a maritime law lawyer, I'm trying to think where that intersects. I don't know, but I'm sure there's a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta about it already. <laughs> Quantum Gilbert and Sullivan operetta theory, once we think about it, it's already been created in the past. It has to be a certain degree of unlikely and it ends with everyone getting married, but yeah. Cable and Wolverine would make a lovely couple, especially since in the Ultimate Universe, they're the same person. But he's cranky enough that he couldn't really get along with anyone else, so yeah. Excellent. Well, I'm glad we've decided this. <laughs> Dennis, if you ever come back to a cable book, you're welcome to use this idea, uh, you know, free of charge. Just, yes, you know, we are officially bequeathing it to you. <laughs> Can and will. <laughs> Perfect. No one else, though. No one else is allowed. 
Speaking of things you're going to be writing soon, um, you are writing the upcoming Jean Grey solo series, which we are super excited about. We're not going to cover that this episode, but folks listening, Dennis is going to be back in the holiday special in a couple weeks. And at that point, we are going to sit down for a conversation about the future of young time displaced Jean Grey and the Phoenix Force. Indeed. So I guess that's sort of a, a basic primer, albeit one heavily skewed towards certain eras of Cable, on Cable as a character. And I mean, this wasn't a lot of Cable continuity, and the idea of this episode wasn't a lot of Cable continuity, because we're going to be getting to that as we progress through the comics. What we wanted to do here was basically give you a grounding in the character, why we like him and find him intriguing, and the things to kind of look out for in terms of his development as we go through his admittedly kind of lackluster beginning. And that's something that's always been true for X-Men with me, is that, you know, there are some periods of X-Men that I don't enjoy as much as other periods, not that they don't have good things about them. But for me, knowing what they're going to turn into and knowing where the elements of them came from, like looking at it in the context of continuity, both past and future, that's what makes me able to enjoy damn near everything. And so that's really what I've been holding on to through, you know, some of the early 90s stories that aren't as much my thing. There's cool stuff that turns into them and they turn into cool stuff. So, uh, Dennis, thank you again so much for joining us. Where can folks find you? I know you're going to be writing the upcoming Jean Grey series. Uh, When does that start and what else are you working on? I have no idea when that starts. I think it starts. It was sometime in 2017. We hear. Yeah, it happens. It happens next year. I've written the first issue and I'm super stoked about it. But I will have to look that up uh, because, like issue ones, when they're big relaunches like this, we get a lot of lead time, so it throws off when it's supposed to come out. But yeah, that's coming up. Um, I'm still doing Spider Woman. I'm still writing all the X Men at the moment, and I am doing the WWE book at Boom, which is awesome if you're a wrestling fan. I just saw that announced. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so that's I'm I'm busy. Uh, the easiest place to find me online is Twitter, Hopeless Dent on Twitter. Uh, I have other things, but I don't use them, so that's the best way to find me. And yeah, I'm 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 extremely busy. Got a lot of stuff coming up, and we're excited about all of the things, especially Jean Grey. That looks amazing. Yeah, thank you again so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and one of the things that certain levels of support gets is thanks on air in a variety of fictional voices from concepts or characters. So I'm going to turn it over to the angry Claremontian narrator. You thought you knew your path, Charles Arthur. You thought you knew your nature. But in the harsh light of day, you are faced with the one possibility you deemed impossible. That Robbie Fraser is the original, and you, the pale imitation. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. Special thanks to our guest today, Dennis Hopeless. New cable-focused episodes of our increasingly cable-focused show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra cable content visual companions to every cable, along with interviews, fan cables, recaps, reviews, and cable. Our show is 100% listener cabled. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be back with still more cable as we ring in the new year with his first in-continuity appearance. For now, happy holidays. Happy holidays.